The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. That I've been asked many times over the years, a heartbreaking question that I've been asked many times over the years that is sadly more common than it should be. And the question goes something like this. Uh, Josh, you know, I was part of a Christian university. I was part of a church. I was part of a Christian organization. And yet I or someone I know suffered abuse. We were seriously mistreated. Something awful happened to us by someone who said they are a Christian. There's a lot of complexities that need to be worked through when someone is working through heartache like that. But here's one thing that we need to be able to say clearly, which the Bible says clearly. Not everyone who says they are a Christian actually is a Christian. And in fact, many people who say they are Christians reveal through their actions that they are not Christians. Our brother just read through us Matthew seven fifteen through 20. In that passage, Jesus says something incredible. He says a good tree will have good fruit, a bad tree will have bad fruit, but then he says this, by their fruits, you will know them. So it is possible for us to discern when someone is not actually a Christian. Now, of course, we know in the ultimate analysis, only God will perfectly differentiate the sheep from the goats. And surely there are some things this side of heaven that are not fully revealed. But there are characterizations that Christians can discern that will help us discern the difference between someone who truly is a follower of Christ and someone who is not and therefore should not be trusted and who should not be listened to and who should not be looked to as a guide or leader. The Bible says this in many places, though we in our current cultural moment feel uncomfortable with it, the Bible is not nearly as uncomfortable. Titus chapter 1 verse 16 says this, people profess to know God, but deny them by their works. So there are people who profess to know God, but their works prove they do not actually know God. Now, of course, we don't want to create a culture of suspicion where no one ever trusts anyone. But I think it's interesting that in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7 begins with, Do not judge, lest you be judged. And be careful to see the beam in your own eye before you find the speck in your brothers. But then in 15 through 20, it says, By their fruits, you will know them. So we need both, right? On the one hand, we need to be very slow to find fault in others, especially without first seeing fault in ourselves. But on the other hand, we should be able to inspect fruit and to discern good fruit from bad fruit. In verse 4 that our brother just read for us, we read that in the church, and Jude, of course, is writing to all churches, and this is still true today, that people will creep in unnoticed. That means that they can creep in at any level. So how will we know if someone has crept in who's not truly a believer? Will they have a tell? Will they have some secret communique that gives them away? I want to point out that they can creep in at all levels. Jesus had Judas. Paul had Demas. John had Diotrephes. Let me just say the matter candidly. Churches can sometimes be led by pastors who are not regenerate. Churches can have deacons who are not born again. 
Churches can have Sunday school teachers who profess to know God, but deny him by their works. Churches can have board members. They can have any infiltration of any level. Now, that's why I've entitled today's sermon, Identifying Fake Christians. Identifying Fake Christians. I know some will use the term false teachers, but that implies that they're only people behind a podium. They could be behind a podium, but they also could be in a pew. They could be anywhere. You could slip in unnoticed, according to Jude 4, even though you are designated for condemnation. You pervert the grace of God into sensuality, and you deny our only Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In today's passage, which is a difficult passage to hear, but a very necessary and wonderful one, Jude is going to help us identify false Christians. I hope you realize how important this is for your life. This will help you know the difference between a true believer and an unbeliever. It'll help you know what comprises a pure church. It'll also help you know what kind of person would be right to marry or to have good partnership with. Because if someone isn't genuinely a believer, it will be revealed regardless of what they have to say. Now, Tim Challies helps us. He gives us seven examples that he wrote about in a blog post called Seven Examples of False Teachers in the Church Today. I'm going to give you his seven examples because they're so close to what we're going to see in Jude, okay? Here's his seven examples up front. Number one, the heretic. The heretic is one who blatantly contradicts the teaching of the Christian faith. The heretic is high in charisma but lacking in truth. Remember, we read in Jude chapter 1, verse 3, that there is a faith once for all delivered to the saints, but there's a kind of teacher who purposefully perverts or adds or subtracts from that deposit of the once for all faith, the heretic. Number two is the charlatan. The charlatan is one who is a Christian only for means of their own gain, what they get out of it, maybe influence or attention or maybe even financial remuneration. This was common in the Bible. Simon Magus was motivated by money in Acts 8. It's been common in church history. When the Roman Catholic Church wanted to build St. Peter's Basilica, they sent out Tetzel to try to get people to buy indulgences so that they could line their pockets and advance the building. It's been common in church history more recently. Tim Challies gives the examples in the 1990s of Robert Tilton or today of Benny Hinn or Creflo Dollar, all people who are examples of people who just want gain through charlatan efforts. Number three is an important one. Number three is what he calls the prophet. Now, don't think of an actual prophet in the Old Testament. Think of someone today who claims that they have some special word from God. And they think that because they have some special word, they can't be challenged. Do you remember? That's what Joseph Smith did when he said that the angel Moroni gave him the Book of Mormon. It was a special word from God that he claimed that he had. Today, this is common with the author Sarah Young, who sells her books at Walmart, Jesus Calling or God Calling. She claims to have a special word from God that that only she has that no one else can question. Number four is the abuser. The Bible talks about abusers in 2 Peter 2 and in Jude 4. Remember, we saw in verse 4, you have it right in front of you in Jude, that these people pervert the grace of God into sensuality, meaning that they pervert God's grace into a sexually sinful way. And many people have abused others sexually as they've perverted God's grace to do so to their advantage. So the abuser is sadly a common example as well. Number four is the divider. We'll read about the divider in today's 
text as well. Sorry, number five is the divider. The divider is someone who gleefully divides brother from brother and sister from sister. He takes uh, disputed matters and elevates them to points of doctrinal fidelity. He finds ways to divide in areas that should not be divided. Number six is the tickler. Talked about the tickler previously. Remember, 2 Timothy says the time will come when people will have itching ears that they would rather have scratched than to hear sound doctrine. I love the way Tim Challies describes the tickler. He says the tickler preaches an empty gospel to a packed out church. That's a great description. The examples he gives to are Norman Vincent Peale or Robert Schuller or Joel Osteen, all examples of people who would rather give vacuous content that brings a big crowd than actually unfold the truth. Number seven would be the speculator. The speculator is someone who grows weary of the truth and tries to gain respectability through originality. Think of the Da Vinci Code. Someone who's eager for novelty or some hidden insight that only they have that's locked in some sort of numerical code. In the reality, fake Christians can creep in unnoticed at any level. And so let's look in God's word today in Jude and let's have God help us be more discerning about the difference between someone who will help you walk with Christ and someone who will damn your soul if you follow them. And so Jude 1, let's begin in verse 8. Fake Christians, false teachers, will exhibit sinful character in like manner. So verse 8, yet in like manner. Like manner, referring back to verses 5, 6, and 7, where we see God's just judgment against those who reject him. So in like manner, these people also reject the Lord. Now I'm going to go very slowly on verse 8, okay? If you don't have the ESV, it may help if you take a pew Bible and open to the page we're on, because I'm going to really go slowly on verse 8, each phrase, because they're all very important descriptions, okay? The first description in verse 8 is they rely on their dreams. This problem persists today. These are people who, instead of being content with what the Bible reveals as God's truth, They instead claim that they have some special dream that God gave them. They claim that they have a special word of the Lord that they received privately. And because they claim it's from the Lord, you can't challenge it. J.R. Packer really spoke well to this when he wrote this. If someone claims that they have their own special word from the Lord, if their private revelation agrees with scripture, it's needless And if it disagrees, it's false. If someone claims they have a private word from the Lord and it agrees with the Bible, we don't need it. (laughs) And if it disagrees, it's obviously false. But haven't you heard people say things like, well, you know, God told me. Well, God was just telling me. No, no, God tells us here. So there is no reliance on dreams That we need. The thing that is the once for all faith is the Word of God. But notice they go from relying on dreams so that they can pursue sinful desires. Look at the next phrase. They rely on dreams so that they can do what? So that they can defile the flesh. This phrase, defile the flesh, has already been used in Jude to describe sexual immorality. So they defile the flesh because they say, God told me it's okay. Let me give some examples in in life. When I was pastoring in Michigan, I was part of a 
interdenominational pastors fellowship. I really enjoyed it because it was a great way to be sharpened and to challenge other believers from any sort of denomination and try to get back to God's word. God used it in some tremendous ways. One time I was there with someone who was from a church where they had a female pastor. And because we were just all having casual conversation over lunch and I could tell we were friendly with one another, I asked him, so how have you guys thought through that as a church? Because, you know, 1 Timothy 2 says that God forbids a woman to exercise authoritative teaching over the congregation. And 1 Timothy 3 says that God has restricted the office of elder to someone who's a one-woman man, a husband of one wife. How have you guys thought through that at your church? And he said, well, you know what? Here's how we've thought through it. Our lead pastor, who is a woman, is aware of those passages of the Bible. And she said, you know, those passages of the Bible, they really weigh on me. And that's why I thought I shouldn't be a pastor. But then God told me privately that he wanted me to become a pastor. And so I listened for a while. And then I said to them, so God told you privately to disobey his word. That, that's the word of the Lord you got? The word of the Lord to you was to disobey God's word. See, we need to listen to 1 John 4, verse 1, that says this, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they are from God. If you claim, well, God told me privately I could do something, even though it disagrees with Scripture, think of how many people have blown up a clinic, shot up a school, or committed adultery because they said, God told me that it was okay. God told me is not a divine revelation of authority. God has told us in his word. So in Jude 1 verse 8, these people claim that they have dreams, and then they use their dreams to pursue sinful desires. I've noticed very many times when someone says, well, God told me it's okay. It normally begins with step one, I want something sinful. Step two, I claim God told me I could have this something sinful. Step three, I pursue something sinful and then drag God's name through the mud with me. It shouldn't surprise us that those who reject God's word also reject God's authority. So look in the third phrase in verse eight. They say they have their own dreams so that they can defile the flesh, so that they can do what third? So they can reject authority. Here's what makes me sad as a believer, because I do love the Lord uh, by God's grace. I hate when people slander God's character and it makes God look bad. Isn't it terrible in the news when someone does something awful and then they say they're a Christian? (laughs) I hate what that does to God's reputation. Haven't, haven't you ever felt the f- feeling of being misrepresented? Um, I've noticed this has been happening in my home a lot lately. I've heard this from my children recently. Hey, Dad, Mom told me that I can eat cookies and stay up late all night tonight. That's what she said. I mean, I, didn't, I was surprised, but that's what she told me. So, Dad, I get to stay up because Mom told me that I can stay up and eat cookies. And, say, and then what I always say is, oh, well, let's go ask Mom. <laughs> and then they're like, oh, you don't have to do that. You don't have to do that. And what I've noticed what happens with people who say, you know, God told me. I say, well, let's ask him. And then they don't want to do that anymore. Because once it comes down to, well, okay, then let's see what he actually says. Then suddenly it's, well, I didn't really 
I didn't really want to do that. See, Psalm 119 and 105 says this, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Let me give you a very specific application that God will use in your life. Ready? Turn the lamp on. Turn the lamp on. If you would commit to reading the Bible every day, and I mean every day, your ability to discern truth from error would skyrocket. And if you turned on the Bible every day and turned off your electronics, you would be happier, you would feel greater peace, you would grow in wisdom, and even better, you would walk with God. Psalm 119 actually promises this. Verse 97, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. These false teachers, they don't want the word to be open. They just want to have their own private dreams that you're not allowed to challenge. But brothers and sisters, turn the lamp on. Test everything by the Spirit. And then the word will never lead you astray. Also, we see their foolhardy heart. So look in verse 8. Now we have a fourth phrase. Not only are these people who say they have their own private dreams that can't be challenged, and then use their dreams to defile the flesh and reject authority. But notice their arrogance. The last phrase says they blaspheme the glorious ones. Admittedly, at first, this verse seems sort of strange, but if you keep reading, it becomes clear, because the next verse we have an example of an angel. So their blaspheming of the glorious ones refers to their arrogance and foolhardiness with things that are actually transcendent and beyond them, like angels, like God himself. Their arrogance causes them to be flippant when they actually should be humbled. So verse 9 is an example. This verse, there's so much I could say if I was in a seminary classroom on this verse, but here's what I'll just say today. Jude appears to be using an extra-biblical story illustratively to make his point. And here it is in verse 9. But when the archangel Michael, we read in Revelation 12, 7, that Michael is an archangel, meaning he's in charge of the heavenly host. In other words, we should tremble in the sight of an archangel. Do you remember what the Roman soldiers did when the angel was sitting on the stone rolled away? They fell down and they passed out, okay? But the false teachers have such arrogance that they're flippant about things that are holy and they're irreverent about things that are transcendent. But the angels don't even do that. So look in verse 9. The archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses. But even the leader of all the angels did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, do you understand what's going on in context? The angel, the lead angel, will not make a pronouncement unless it's definitively based on the Lord's judgment. But the false teachers are happy making judgments that are based on their own private opinions and revelation. Meaning they've arrogated to themselves a position that belongs to God and God alone. The only absolute Trump statement is, thus saith the Lord. Everything else could be wrong. (laughs) 
And so that is why they are false teachers. They do not base what they say on the Bible, but based on their own perceived revelation. Verse 10, these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Animals don't really know what's going on. Dogs can't really communicate. So they have just instinctive desires that they just are compelled to. And so they don't actually grasp what's going on. In the same way, fake Christians and false teachers, they just only think about their immediate gratification of desires. They don't grasp what's happening in God's sovereign universe. And so they blaspheme things that they don't even understand. If that phrase is confusing to you, think about it this way. Haven't you ever heard someone, maybe someone in entertainment, maybe someone you work for, maybe someone you know well, who is flippant and perverse in their language about something that's actually holy and reverent? For example, God's name. They treat it as if it's blasphemous and perverse and common, when in fact, this is as holy as it gets. And so verse 10 talks about fake Christians and false teachers do not revere what they should revere namely God. And now verse 11, I hope will whet your Old Testament appetite. Because <laughs> verse 11 gives three examples from the Old Testament to show that these are still characteristic of people who are fake Christians or false teachers. Verse 11, woe to them. And if that phrase rubs you the wrong way, remember Jesus uses it repeatedly. Woe to them, condemnation to those. Verse 11, woe to them, and here's example number one, for they walked in the way of Cain. You guys remember Cain, right? So Adam and Eve are blessed with two children, Cain and Abel to begin with. We know they also had other sons and daughters, but we start, we read first about Cain and Abel, and what does Cain do? He murders his brother. But remember the conversation God has with him. Sin lies at the door, crouching It wants to have mastery over you, but you need to master it. And so Cain is an example of false teachers and fake Christians because Cain chose wickedness over goodness. He chose wickedness over goodness. He rebelled against God's direct word to him. In the same way, false teachers rebel against God's direct word to us, choosing wickedness over goodness. The second example is Balaam. Do you remember Balaam? I will always associate Balaam with Emmanuel Baptist Church. Let me tell you why. The day that God had led us here for our candidacy sermon, I was staying in the hotel room on Wake Forest. At that time, I had no idea what my bearings were, but I remember staying there. And I was just reading in the morning through my Bible, through what we had been reading through at home. And we had been reading through the whole Bible. And so I was in Numbers 22 and 23 that morning. And that morning in the hotel room, you know, really praying, earnest, God, is this what you have for us? Do you want us to move across the country? Do you want us to come to Emmanuel? I read Numbers 22 and 23, and in that passage, Balaam gets on his donkey, and Balaam's on his way to go, actually, for selfish reasons, say wrong things against God's people. And so what the donkey does (laughs) is the donkey talks, and then the donkey tells Balaam, don't you see the angel there with the unsheathed sword? And of course, Balaam doesn't. And then the donkey's, t- I'm not walking anymore. You need to see the angel. And so then God finally opens Balaam's eyes and he realizes there's an angel with an unsheathed sword. And he realizes if he kept walking, he would have been killed. 
Now, I remember praying that morning, Lord, if there is something here that I don't know, do not let me walk into the unsheathed sword. Lord, let the donkey talk to me. Make it as clear as possible if this is where you want me to go. Thankfully, God made it unambiguously clear through your vote, and I'm gracious and grateful for that. But here, Balaam's error is that Balaam went to go do something he never should have done and wasn't willing to listen because his motives were for selfish gain rather than selfless service. Remember, Balaam is being hired out by a foreign enemy to curse God's people. See, here's how false teachers are like Balaam. They will say anything for the right price. There are parts of the Bible they won't preach. There are things that are uncomfortable that they won't say. But for the right fee, they'll say whatever you want them to say. Now, God was so good that he overcame Balaam's curses. (laughs) And God is so good, he still does that often. But one of the ways you know a false teacher is that there are portions of the Bible they will not teach. Acts chapter 20, Paul told the Ephesian elders, I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Now the third example. So we had Cain and Balaam, now the third one, verse 11, and perished in Korah's rebellion. Do you remember Korah? Korah was one who was in a position that was priestly, but he rejected Moses and Aaron. He subverted the God-given authority that was placed over him out of jealousy and spite. Such is the case with fake Christians and false teachers. They reject godly authority out of jealousy and spite. So here's a rotten fruit test for you. People who choose wickedness over goodness like Cain. People who will say anything for the right price like Balaam. People who are rebellious against godly authority like Korah. What is the future for these people and how can we better identify them? And now verse 12. Verse 12 uses a number of poetic images and I'll try to explain them simply so you can grasp what the poetry means. Verse 12, these are hidden reefs at your love feast and they feast with you without fear. A hidden reef Picture a boat in the days that you had shipping, and when you're getting close to a harbor, if you don't realize there's rocks underneath, it will sink the ship. So these people sink the ship. They're hidden in the congregation, but they undercut the boat and they cause it to leak and they cause the whole thing to go down. Notice where their shamelessness is pronounced. It's pronounced at love feast. You might be thinking, what is a love feast? Well, in the New Testament, that's where communion was taken. Their shamelessness is shown in communion. They take communion without fear, without reverence, without confession, though they're living in open rebellion to God. Communion is meant to be a time of solemnity. It's a time that you should not take when you're persisting in sin unrepentantly, but these people don't care. And notice they feast with you. They act like they're among you, when in fact they should have fear because they're not. The next phrase, shepherds feeding themselves, is most likely a quotation, a paraphrase of Ezekiel 34. There we read that God's leaders should not be shepherds who only take care of themselves. Ezekiel 34 verse 2 says, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who only take care of themselves. Should shepherds not also care for the flock? 
There are some leaders who actually don't care about serving the sheep. They only care about serving themselves. This is a designation that they are, in fact, a false teacher, a fake Christian. Verse 12, the next poetic phrase is waterless clouds swept along by winds. In first century Palestine, well, in Palestine at any time, it's hot and it's arid and it's dry. And if you see a cloud coming, you get excited. But if it doesn't send any rain, that's disappointing. Such is the case of false teachers and fake Christians. They have an appearance of somebody who's going to contribute good, but when they actually come, no good comes from them. The next phrase, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. What a poetic, compounding way to say they have no spiritual life. They are dead. Nothing good comes from them. Now verse 13, they are wild waves of the sea, casting up foam for their own shame. Have you ever been walking on the the beach and you see the residue of where the waves came up? And sometimes when you're walking on the beach, if people have thrown garbage in the beach, the waves will pull it up and then it'll leave a line of that trash on the shore. And that's what he's saying these fake Christians and false teachers do. When they wash up to the church and then wash away, the only thing they leave behind is a residue of garbage. Verse 13 continues by warning of what their future will be. They are like wandering stars, so stars off course, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Notice that phrase, gloom and utter darkness, was also used of the angels in verse 6 who had rebelled against God's authority. And so Judah's telling us very clearly that fake Christians, false teachers, if they do not repent, will suffer in eternal fire. So what are we supposed to do with this sermon? Let me give you three things, and I don't have these on your bulletin, so these are new as of this morning. So three big takeaways of what God wants for us from Jude 8 through 13. Here's the first thing. Brothers and sisters, we must, number one, grow in discernment. We must grow in discernment. God has told us that we can know them by their fruit. That's what Jesus told us. We must learn to grow in our discernment. The fake Christians who have crept in unnoticed can be spotted by their ungodly conduct. Over Christmas and New Year's, my last grandparent passed away, my mom's mom. She was almost 100 years old. I love my grandma so much. But one of the things that was unfortunate was how false teachers were able to take advantage of her. In her older years, especially at home, just trying to watch things on television, there were many bad televangelists that she would watch. And those people tend to know who they can take advantage of. Yesterday, we visited some of the homebound from our church, and something I've noticed as a pastor over the years that really breaks my heart, and I hope awakes righteous indignation in me, is how often folks at that stage of life are taken advantage of by people on television. They say things that are vacuous, just enough to kind of sound spiritual, 
They say things that are enticing. They ask for money from you. They normally have religious language, but can I just plead with you to grow in your discernment and have a steady diet of the Bible because we will all come to a point where we have time to listen, but we need to be discerning with that time. My grandma's favorite preacher in her final years was Joel Osteen. And I wish I could have found a way to put somebody else across her radar. But those things have an impact on us. So may we grow in discernment. Number two, here's the second big application for us today. Consider if this text is about you. Number two, consider if this text is about you. I don't say this lightly and I don't mean to cause morbid introspection, but I do know this from pastoring for years. There are always people in church who aren't actually saved. And some of them have been in that church for decades. And I want to ask you to consider something this morning. Maybe the reason you tend to be miserable and nitpicky and frustrated and rejecting of biblical truth is because you're not born again. And if you have found over the decades that walking with God is mainly a burden for you, I would hate if you never knew what true spiritual life was like. In the 1600s, the most well-known Baptist pastor was Benjamin Keach. Now his son, Elias Keach, came over from England to the United States in the year 1686. Now Elias Keach was not a Christian and he knew it. But having moved from England to America, he needed to make money. And so what Elias did was he dressed in black and he wore a band and he tried to pass himself off as a minister, mainly borrowing from his father's good reputation. Elias preached all over Pennsylvania and New England and he was gaining a following because he was an excellent speaker. I mean, they always are, right? (laughs) As people would come to hear Elias and his popularity grew, one sermon, we read this about in church history, He was pretty far along in the sermon, and then he stopped short, and he looked like a man astonished. And then he fell down. And the people in the congregation assumed that he had had a seizure or some other sort of physical malady. When they came up to him and they asked him what the matter was, he had tears in his eyes and confessed that he had always been an imposter. But then here's what the biography wrote next. Great was Elias's distress, but it ended happily, for from this date, he counted his conversion to Christ. Wouldn't it be awesome if you were watching TBN, which I hope you're not watching TBN, <laughs> but if you were, and a false teacher actually flipped over to a passage about God's judgment of sin, and then they stopped in the middle of their sermon and said, that's talking about me. And then they put their faith in Christ. Let me tell you what happened next with Elias. Elias heard there was a Baptist minister at Cold Spring in Bucks County between Bristol and Trenttown, And to him, he went to seek counsel. And by him, he was baptized. And through the church, he was ordained. Later from Cold Spring, Mr. Keach came to Penapic and settled a church there. And then traveled through Pennsylvania and the Jerseys, preaching the gospel in the wilderness with great success. In so much so, he was later considered one of the chief Baptist preachers in America. He and his family embarked back to England in the spring of 1692, having resigned the church's care in the Reverend John Watts. Isn't it better to be converted in your sermon 
than to die thought of a great Christian only to wake in eternal fire. So consider if this passage is describing you. But now number three, rejoice in the real deal. So if number one is growing discernment, number two is consider if this is you, but number three, rejoice in the real deal. I open by sharing how sad it is and how often it is that someone will reach out to me and share some horrible experience they went through at the hands of someone who claimed to be a Christian. But I want to remind us this morning to rejoice in the real deal. You see, Christianity does not give us an airtight argument. Christianity gives us an airtight person. You see, here's what we need to realize. When we long for authenticity, when we long for trust and reality and transcendence, nothing in this earth can satisfy that longing. Heaven must come down for that longing to be satisfied. But the good news is heaven did come down when God the Son came down as Jesus. You see, on the cross, Jesus, who is the only one who perfectly is without hypocrisy, the only one who has never had an impure motive or a deviation from truth, the only person who has never experienced insincerity and who has not been a charlatan by any extent chose to take the place of all of us who are, chose to suffer the death of sinners and atone for our sinful guilt. See, there is a real deal. Jude actually tells us about the real deal in verse 1. He says he's a servant of Jesus Christ and that he is kept for Jesus Christ. So let me give you this encouragement. The next time you hear about a Christian leader or a Christian somebody who has failed epically and it challenges your faith, remember, we weren't following them anyway. (laughs) We're kept for Jesus Christ. He is the one we're following. Whatever else happens, we know who our heart has been prepared for. Everyone else may let us down. He never will. One application for us, though, as a church. This passage also shares why we need relationships of great transparency at Emmanuel. What did Adam and Eve do after they sinned? They hid If as a church we lean into knowing each other even more deeply, we lean into meaningful membership, we lean into meaningful conversations, most false teachers will disappear. Because transparency creates trust and that eliminates those who are false. So one key way the church can be preserved is by spending time with one another meaningfully talking about Christ. Let's close together by prayer to him. God, I thank you that there is a real deal for us to rejoice in. And that real deal is you. And that real deal was seen through your son, Jesus Christ, who has revealed to us the father full of grace and truth. God, I pray that when people experience disappointment, And when they feel like things are insincere or inauthentic, that we would ultimately find ourselves keeping our hopes squarely on Jesus and him alone. Only he, Lord, has suffered the sinner's death and conquered it through a resurrection. Perhaps someone today needs to find saving faith through putting their hope in him and him alone. May they be saved. 
as hard as it is, perhaps someone watching the sermon at home or listening to it even later has to consider that they, like Elias Keach, have been an imposter. And better for them to be saved during the sermon than to wake eternally in fire. So Lord, let no pretense of reputation keep someone from repentance and faith. Lord, I also pray that we would be okay with growing in discernment. We live in a cultural moment where we think it's a virtue to accept anything. Where the Bible is so clear that we must test everything. So help us to know the word of God, to read it, to evaluate claims in light of it. And then to trust what Psalm 119 promises, that if we will follow the word, we will be wiser than our enemies, more learned than the aged, more discerning than our teachers, because when the lamp is on, it shows everything for what it truly is. So God, give us confidence in the Bible because we have confidence in you. And through that, Lord, may our relationships at Emmanuel draw closer to each other. And may you protect us, Lord, from wolves who would come in among the sheep. In Christ I pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's E-B-C-R-A-L-E-I-G-H dot com.